All right, so uh, a few preliminary matters before we get into my theses. Um, and there should be handouts if you're coming in, uh, handouts on the seats. We've got some more printing. So what we're going to do this morning is consider what does the Bible have to say? What does it teach us about education, and especially as Christians? And then how does that apply to our context today? And one of the things that I want to uh, get to repeatedly is that there is no neutrality. Okay, and that's, that's part of what we're seeing in what's going on culturally and part of what we have to recognize. And so if you say, well, what's education from a Christian perspective? The way the world would think of that is, well, okay, that's your perspective, and then you got the Muslim perspective, and you got the atheist perspective. But that's not the way it is. It's here's the truth, which is Christianity, and here's everything else. And so there's no perspective divorced from God and that neutral because he's the creator and he reigns over all things. And so everything we do is in relation to him, and he's the one who ultimately decides whether what we do is good or bad, whether it's righteous or evil, right? And so when we say, what does the Bible teach about education, this isn't some, um, you know, uh, history of religion study that just puts all the religions out there. This is, none of, this is what God says, which means it's true, which means we need to believe it and see it as good and in, so we can uh, in, engage the world rightly and helpfully. And so the way we've structured this is we're going to have this main session over an hour. Um, depends how talkative I am and whether or not we get a we'll go up to this classroom at the top of the steps. Peter's going to do Christian school. He'll be probably in the conference room here. And then Doug and Brenda are going to do homeschooling here. Uh, and, and they have a lot of experience. And you probably know Brenda's a homeschool certifier. And that's easily the most involved from a parental standpoint as far as the things you need to know and do. And so uh, we wanted to reserve the, the big space for that. And then in those breakouts especially, there'll be time for questions and interaction. And then we'll just dismiss, and you can have lots of informal conversation and hang out. Um, historically, if you look, if you know your, your Christian history at all, you know one of the things that really marks the church is schools. Everywhere that the church has spread, Christians have built schools. Education is a Christian. And so, you know, the, the world loves to portray it as though those who believe in God really believe, right? The fundamentalists, the Christian national, you know, whatever the pejorative term of the day is. They're, they're the freaks and they're anti-education, right? That's just not at all, that's historically ignorant. Everywhere the church goes, we build schools. And, and all the institutions of higher learning, especially the most prestigious ones, the vast majority of them were founded by Christians, now, most of them have left that behind. You know, their glory days are actually them. Even though their endowments and their enrollments may be bigger than ever, they've, they've left behind the truth. Uh, but, but we need to see as Christians, it's part of, so a couple things I want to emphasize. One is there's no neutrality. The other is we, we, we must not be fearful in how we engage education, right? Our education and educating ourselves but also educating our children is how we engage the world optimistically, rightfully, right? I, I, I don't, there, there's, there are things to be afraid of in the world, but I don't want my children to have a fundamental disposition of fear. I want them to actually have a fundamental disposition of um, understanding, in some cases, 
mockery. That's foolish. Why would you believe that, right? By your arguments, because your arguments are lame. Here's the truth, right? So we don't educate in order to hide behind the wall, right? We educate to engage the world because it is our Father's world, right? It's not a neutral world. It's our Father's world. And, and he, Jesus has already won. It's so great. Uh, so, yeah, Christians in schools, literacy, uh, literacy skyrockets wherever Christianity goes. That's because we're people of the book, right? Our God has revealed himself in a book. And so Christians have educated their children to read because that's how we engage our God. It's not the only way, but it's the primary. So we're going to look at options that have in God's kindness uh, been available to us. You may remember uh, a friend, Christian B. Germany, who came and preached years ago. Uh, preached from Isaiah. He talked about wooden idols. Right, he sounded like Schwarzenegger. Um, in Germany, it's illegal to homeschool because of the concern about neo-Nazism, that that, that ideology would revive. So they, they literally legally cannot homeschool. So it's a kindness of God that we, can, that we have the options we do. So we have homeschooling, we have Christian schools, and we have public schools, or what we're calling government schools. Uh, we're calling them government schools because that's what they are. Um, and the vision of these public schools that are run primarily by local school boards, that's still important. But if you know anything about um, the school system and how money works, uh, the government funds it. Wherever the funds go, the strings go, and the value, right? Uh, and so that's why there's institutions like um, Grove City or Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that don't receive, Reformation Biologists, others, don't receive government funds because they don't want those strings, right? They want to have full control over curriculum and everything. Um, the three options available to us, and I want to say really clearly at the outset, none of those options are inherently sinful. It is not sin, it's not necessarily sin to send your child to a government school or a Christian school or to homeschool. It can, all, all three of those can be sinful, depending on why and how you do them, but they're not inherently sinful. On the flip side, none of them are inherently salvific. None of those will save your child, right? Because salvation is part of environment. Environment matters profoundly, but that school is not going to save your child, right? The issue is the heart the heart before God. So those are the options we're going to look at. And, and we're going to talk about school choice within the context of the church. And, and so I want to encourage you, this is the context to do it. Right? These are not private matters. They are, they are decisions that we each need to make as, as parents, as couples, as families. But for Christians, we know that nothing we do is divorced from God and his word and his people. And so to have people who know and love the Lord and know and love his word and know and love you, and, and you can talk about this thing, well, here's how we think about it. We're looking at this choice because we think this, this would be best, right? Well, have you considered that? Or have you considered the other thing, right? So instead of just being left to our own wisdom and experiences, we have this strength in that the, the Lord has provided for us his people. And so we need to be able to talk about these things, just like everything else, sorry. Uh, just like everything else in the Christian life. So our decisions are a matter of conscience, and we need to make our choice safe, 
But our conscience isn't totally private. It, we need to have conscience. And one of the ways that we uh, love each other is by helping to inform one another's consciences. Right? Uh, so much of my growth over the last 20 years has come as brothers and sisters through fellowship, looking at marriage, looking at parenting, looking at schooling, looking at all kinds of things. And my conscience has been informed. Things that didn't used to bother me now bother me. And, and maybe things that, that did bother me don't in the same way anymore. Right? That's what our consciences need to do. We need to be biblically informed. And none of us are born with uh, pure consciences. Conscience is a gift from God, but it's affected by sin too, just like the rest of us. So you have the conscience factor. You also have the providential circumstances factor, which is uh, who am I? Who is my wife? What is, what's our season of life? What resources do we have? What, what options are legitimate options? What are our... What are our, uh, and the way we've done it is um, we're basically constantly looking at every child every year, right? What's, what's the best choice for this child this year? Because circumstances change, and our children go through seasons of sanctification. And uh, the way you think about a five- or six-year-old kindergarten age versus a uh, preteen versus 17, 18, like those things all affect and make a difference. Uh, and we have to include those things, and that should be part of our fellowship, okay? So true grace isn't, hey, leave me alone and let me make my choices, right? True, true grace is let's love each other. Let's, let's talk about things uh, where we're all ultimately pursuing God's glory, okay? More than anything, I want to glorify the Lord how I educate my children. I want my children to glorify uh, And so all these things are factors that affect the decisions that we make. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to briefly give you my educational biography, both personally and then what we've done with our kids, just to give you a little context. Um, so I'm entirely the, the product of public schools in Iowa, Colorado, and then back to Iowa. Um, there were hardly, I don't remember any homeschools in Colorado. I remember one or two in Iowa. In Colorado, there was a Christian school. Uh, in Colorado Springs, uh, but we were poor, and that just was not an option. Uh, and plus, I think it was just a very foreign thought to my parents. In Iowa, there was a Christian school, I think of Forest City, which is a half hour away, which in Iowa is 30 miles. It's not eight miles like here to go a half hour. It's 30 miles. Uh, so it was a pretty good drive, and again, we were poor. So, uh, And it just really wasn't a consideration. You just go to the public school. You know, in my public school, in my high school, the English teacher taught the Old Testament as literature and history. Now, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. It's kind of criminal. Like, these stories are amazing, and you're making them kind of boring and dull. Like, that just shouldn't be the way it is. But, but hey, this rural Iowa public school, and we're studying the Bible, part of the curriculum. Um, so I was entirely public schooled. I went to a small liberal arts college in Wisconsin for a year uh, before I dropped out and went to why I went into YWAM, because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, and I didn't want to keep accruing debt. Um, and I was content to never go back to school again, uh, but in YWAM, as my theology became more reformed, and I saw people engaging the scripture much more deeply than I had, I thought, you know, I would love to be able to do that. And so I took 
correspondence courses through the mail through Moody Bible College. So depending on your age, you might, the mail is something where you you put a physical piece of paper in a box and it magically disappears. And then it comes back weeks later with a letter on it, right? Um, So I did a couple courses that way. And then in 02, Lori and I came and visited her family and we drove by LBC and uh, and through God's providence, decided to move out here so I could go to LBC because I just wanted to understand the Bible better. I didn't be a pastor. I just wanted to understand the Bible and be able to teach it. So then I, finished, I did my bachelor's at LBC, graduated in 06. In 07, we were sent to the pastor's college uh, outside of D.C. So we were down there for about a year, moved our family. Uh, so I did, at the time, obviously commuter, not residential, Work full-time, school full-time, wife and two kids. Uh, Pastors College, that was full-time, which later we transferred our credits to the seminary and got like 30, 35 credits. So that's about what that year was. Um, And then came back on staff, and from 09 to really 2016, I did a Master of Arts in Religion, which is a MAR, it's a 60-credit degree at Reform Seminary outside of McLean. Uh, which is either a two-and-a-half or a six-hour drive, depending on uh, what time of day you're trying to drive around D.C. So, and Baltimore. Um, so I would leave my home at 4.30 in the morning <laughs> to get there at 7 for my 10 o'clock class because uh, I wasn't going to do rush hour. Um, and I did that kind of a few courses a year here and there, modulars, until 2014, and then I just hit it hard, and I did something like 45 credits in a little over a year. Um, After that, I applied to Westminster outside of Philly for their PhD in church history. Did half the coursework for that before dropping out because of providential circumstances. And then I applied to the PhD program in biblical counseling at Southern Seminary in Louisville. And that's what I've been doing the last four years. Uh, And I'm I'm painfully close (laughs) to being done with my dissertation in that program. So, and that's been uh, twice a year down for courses, uh, other than COVID, which was Zoom. So I've done correspondence school, I've done, first done online school, I've done modular school, I've, I did one year of traditional school and all the rest was adult and married and engaged in life. So, so, so for most of the last 20 years, I've been in school. So I, I, I'm not, I don't have an EDD, I don't have a degree in education, but I've experienced it. I've taken courses on pedagogy, and online instruction, all kinds of stuff. I've read secular sources, I've read Christian sources. Um, so I'm not saying this as an expert, I'm just saying this is, this is not unfamiliar ground to me. Um, as far as our children go, church, preschools, um, that's its own thing. Uh, she, uh, her kindergarten year at Peckway Elementary in West Willow, which is public school, government school. Then we went to the pastor's college, so we did kind of homeschool within the covenant life system down there. Then we came back and have done homeschool public school, so cyber charter school, PA virtual, if you're familiar with that. So it's public school curriculum in our home. It's free. It's subsidized. You get computer, printer, books, partially subsidized internet, learning materials. Um, and so she did that through ninth grade, and then she went to Penn Manor. Morgan did that through eighth grade, and then she went to Penn Manor. Both my, gir- Ooh, 
Both my girls graduated from Penn Manor. All the rest of my kids have done PA virtual for their entire education. Aaron's finishing up his sophomore year. He will likely graduate from PA virtual. That's probably. Uh, the other two, I'm looking to pull out because of movement that we've seen. Uh, and one of the primary values for us in how we've educated our kids is to have them in our home, right? So to be with their mom, to be with their, each other, and for us to have a lot of access to what they're being taught. There, those have been some of the things that have informed our choices. Um, I, yeah, so I'll just, I'll stop there for that. And we can talk about that in uh, the breakout if anybody's interested. It just gives you a little idea. So we, we have done zero formal Christian education. Okay, it, with our kids. We've done a massive amount of informal Christian education. Uh, and we have read a lot of books around the dinner table. And um, both, uh, there's a great little, I forget what it's called, Marty's book on the Old and New Testament. It's got 78 stories. Um, that's a great little book for younger ones where you're going through all of scripture and good discussion. We've done that. We've done the whole Brown uh, biography series for kids. Those are great. All of those. We've done church history. We've done all kinds of things. And more than that, and this is huge, one of the things that if you don't already have this conviction, it'll be very clear from scripture. Uh, all of life, your engagement with the Lord and all of life should be so consuming and permeating that you can't do anything without talking about God, right? It doesn't mean that you're, you're name-dropping God all the time. Uh, you know, my son Aaron plays baseball. Oh, my sports, too, for Penn Manor. So Greta does track and cross-country, and Aaron does baseball for the school. So Aaron does baseball. We talk about baseball all the time, right? Uh, and and uh, the, the dugout has been an opportunity for us as parents to engage topics before we would wish to engage them. There's an educational component in the dugout. Um, but we can't talk about baseball without it being in reference to God in some capacity. It's always going to get there, right? Uh, you know, we're Phillies fans. Phillies are a great example of both creation and the fall, right? Because it's like, this is beautiful, this is great. Now they're terrible. They stink, right? They, they lose 10 to 1 last night to the Cubs. Um, and, and so you experience the whole biblical picture, right? You don't well, you get a little redemption, I guess. But, um, and so, you know, biblically, the, the opportunity for us as parents is to constantly orient our children to the Lord and, and his reality. And um, Bill Farley's book, Gospel Powered Parenting, is very good on that. Primarily what we're doing as parents is orienting our children to what God says is true. Call it Christian worldview, call it whatever you will. Um, and, and especially in those first years, we're orienting our children to, A, you're not the king or queen of the universe, right? There are authorities, many authorities above you. But B, here's how you need to understand things. Here, here's what gives meaning. So much of education is meaning. It's not just facts. It's what do these facts mean? And that's all over scripture, and we'll get to that. Okay? So we're trying to help our children rightly engage reality so they draw out the meaning that is there. There. Right? We just did this whole series in Proverbs 1 to 9. 
what's the wise man or the wise woman do? They, they uh, arrive at the appropriate interpretation because they understand the Lord and his ways and they engage w- life well and wisely because they know his truth and they love his truth and it's transformed them. You know, um, great example of that is James Lindsay, if you know him at all, cynical theories, um, Marxification of education. He, brilliant guy, PhD, really good at studying and understanding the, the theories and philosophies that are permeating our world. Those are useful books to read. But he's an atheist, and he's a secular liberal. And so he wants to have the values that Christianity has built without the God and the foundation that is required to have those values. And so it's just impossible, and he draws arbitrary lines. He's like, you know, the LGB, that's good. But the TQ, that's the problem, and the plus. Says who, like, by what standard? How are you assessing that, right? So, um, yeah, as parents, we have, and that's where especially people of the book, if we know and love God's word, we understand reality deeper than people who don't know the Lord. Right? Proverbs talks about that with justice. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who know the Lord understand it completely. That explains so much of our cultural conversation. So that's all preliminary. Let's go to definition. So we're looking to answer this question, again, as Christians. What is education? What is education? Defining our terms is always very important, but especially in our day. And so here's my definition of education. Education is the lifelong pursuit and acquisition of knowledge about God and his world under his authority and for his glory. Okay, so just quickly on the components, it's lifelong, so we should all be growing and being educated, and we had our men's courses graduation last night, and one of the things I love about that event every year is to see the older folks who are there, and they're still engaging, and they're still looking to grow, right? They're not coasting. They're not, you know, being self-served. They want to grow as Christians. They want to know and love the Lord more. They want to apply his word to their lives. Lifelong. The, the, you know, the first eight years of life are uniquely potent in us, and as parents, we need to see that. Right? There's a whole lot of work we do in those first eight years. There's a whole lot of problems we avoid by being faithful to the responsibilities the Lord's given us those first eight years. And the first 20-ish years are uniquely formative. And, and as we go, we should establish and deepen and rightly harden in our convictions. Here's what's true. Here's what I'm building my life on. Right? One of my favorite Chesterton quotes is, you know, uh, the point of having an open mind like an open mouth is to close on something solid. Right? An open mind doesn't do you any good if it's open. It needs to close on solid things. This is true. This is where I stand. Um, so it's lifelong. It's both the pursuit and acquisition. It, it, it's a process. It takes time. It builds. It's cumulative. But you a child and but I, I, as an adult, I've put away childish things. I've matured. You know, my Josiah is working today, and, and uh, he's 11. He said, Dad, I just want the whole day to not have school and to play. And I said, well, buddy, 
you're not, you're not a little child anymore. You're grown to be a man. It's a, you're 11, and you're welcome. You know, you know, it's good for you to, to work. It's good for you to have these responsibilities and earn money. And, and you're welcome that I'm not taking your money, because most kids who've worked throughout history, it's gone to the family pot, you know, and I'm letting you have it, you know. It's all perspective. You gotta it's a Christian worldview, educating to reality. Okay. Uh, so pursuit and acquisition of knowledge. Right? And in knowledge, we're including things like meaning. We're including biblical categories like wisdom. So facts are important, but they need to be interpreted. And, and we'll see that when we get into Deuteronomy. About God, education is fundamentally just like everything in this world about God. There's nothing where God doesn't come into play, and your views of God profoundly shape how you approach education and what you educate to, okay? So it's about God, but it's also about his world, which means everything else, because everything else is his creation, including the things that humans have invented over time, right? They're sub-creators. In the church, we talk about uh, Jesus is the king of the church. He has magisterial authority. He rules. The, the elders are, have ministerial authority. They serve, right? And leadership and authority is under the authority of Christ, and that's the way all authority works in this world, right? We're all servants. Romans 13 talks about that with civil officers. They are God's servants. So as parents, you have ministerial authority. You're not free to set whatever priorities you want. Your king has told you what his priorities are, and you need to, uh, you know, so even though the king of England is far less powerful than he used to be, the idea of a prime minister is the chief servant of the king to execute the king's will. And he does things on behalf of his majesty or the queen, her majesty, right? He's executing what the king desires. That's what we're called to do as parents. What does the king what authority and responsibility is entrusted to us, and what are we, we're his subjects, our children are his subjects, we're trying to orient them to that reality, we'll get into that. So God, his world, so everything else is God's world, okay? That means that there's no situation where God doesn't come into play, right? Again, no neutrality. Under his authority, under his authority, He's the one who says, and for his glory. And so spending the years I have in academia, academia has its own glory, uh, and it's very important to many academics that they receive that glory. Uh, I'm not personally on Twitter, but I stalk some folks on Twitter for information, and it also PhD. It's like so-and-so insecure, right? Like it's, <laughs> I'm going to put that out there. You all got to know I've got this degree. Uh, it's, it's really interesting, and, and academia is just totally suffused with pride. Look at me, right? I, I tell my kids, the greatest insult you could give to an academic is to say they're unnuanced, right? Oh, that's very unnuanced. Oh, you know. Uh, and most academics tend to be very fragile. They just don't deal with critique well. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm the smartest person in the room, right? You all need to defer to me. Like, that's just, it's no good. It's... So it's not, education's not for our glory. It's for God's glory, right? That's the aim. Okay, so let's get into theses. Going from big picture, and we're going to land on some, some practical application.
So first, your children are created in the image of God and are therefore responsible to know, love, and obey Him. That is who they are, and that is what they're for. We need to understand that, and we need to help them to understand Not raising our children to make a choice to be Christians. Like, they do need to choose, right? They need to trust Christ. But we're not raising them to make a choice. It's not, hey, let's go to the food court and you could get pizza or burgers. Or, no, no. We're raising them to choose Christ, right? Here's truth. Here's life. Here's uh, flourishing. Make this choice. Don't choose these things. These are death. These are errors. These are evil. This is right. Call that indoctrination. Uh, but it's not. It's actually just, it's, it's our parental responsibility. I, I'm raising you. You are created in the image of God, which means he has creator rights over you, glory, right? And so our children need to hear that, and especially in as confused as our age is about identity. And so Genesis 1 obviously establishes that. But also in redemption, you see it in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So the ground of the Ten Commandments is I'm the God who redeemed you. You were slaves in Egypt, and I redeemed you. And and that, that category, that theological category of redemption is a slavery metaphor. We go from slaves of sin and death, slaves of the devil, to slaves of Christ. We belong to him. Right? We're not just slaves. We're sons. We're brothers. We're all kinds of things. But, but we are slaves uh, of Christ. And so all of our obligations are to God and his glory, uh, including the people who reject all of that. They're still obligated. Romans 1 is really clear. Uh, the Shema, the famous Shema in Deuteronomy 6, right? It's the command. Here's the Lord. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Okay. Jesus picks up on that in Mark 12. And then in John 14, Jesus links love to obedience. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? It doesn't make any sense to say, I love Jesus, and I don't want to do anything to do. Right? James is really clear on that. So, so that's, the, that's the foundation, that our children are created in God's image. Uh, we're unique, right? Mankind is unique in the image of God to know and engage the Lord. Other creatures are not. So that's who they are. Thesis 2, your children have been given to you, their parents, as a gift from God. They are given for his purposes. So here's who these children are. Here's who they belong to. They belong to you. How did they come to you? As a gift from God. Why did he give them to you? That's a great question, right? So Psalm 127, behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. That's a gift. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What does a warrior do with arrows? He shoots the bad guys or he shoots game or, right, he's providing for his family. He's fighting the enemy. He's protecting those he loves. He's not putting the arrows to the ground and hiding behind them, right? They're not fundamental. It's, it's an offensive category, not a defensive word. And so we want to raise our children so that they go into the world knowing and loving the Lord, right? As our children get, so when your children are first born, you have entire authority over them, right? If you look at your pictures as a child and you say to your mom, why did you put me in those clothes, right? You didn't do, right? And you're like, man, those fashions are rough. 
Um, you, you dress them, you feed them, you take them where they don't even know they're going or may not want to go, right? Um, you discipline them. But as they get older, your authority diminishes and, and uh, influence, that's a little bit of false dichotomy, but influence is increasing, right? And, and I want to raise my kids so that by the time they're teenagers, they're not constantly like, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do that? But so they know and love the Lord and the things they want to do glorify Him, right? And they're, they're looking to us for wisdom and input, but they're not just, okay, whatever you say, right? That, that's, that's not maturity yet. And all our kids go, you know, different paces and they have their own struggles and but that's what we want is these arrows knowing and loving the Lord and engaging the responsibility, looking forward to, hey, I want to get married. I want to uh, have a family. I want to build something worthwhile in God's world that glorifies him and loves my neighbor and works for the good of the church, right? That, that's what we're looking to do. So Psalm 127, uh, Malachi 2, the famous divorce passage, right? Uh, the Lord's critiquing the men of Israel because they've been faithless. But notice what he says Top of page five, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So God's spirit is present in marriage to make them one. And what was the one God seeking? Why did he do that? Why did he bring them together? Godly offspring. It's remarkable. Intentionally childless marriage is sin. Marriage is meant to have children. It's it's a, a constituent part um, being married, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Childish, childlessness, barrenness, infertility, right? Which is always tragic, just like someone who wants to be married and can't. That's an affliction, that's a suffering. Um, but to say, no, 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 I don't want to have kids, I just want to be married. No, no, you don't understand what marriage is. The Lord wants godly offspring. And, and notice, he doesn't just say offspring. He says godly offspring. And the Lord is not unaware of total depravity and original sin, right? So he knows our kids are born sinners. He's saying, I want you to raise them to know and love me, godly offspring. That's why I brought you together. So why are you married couples? A big part of it is to produce godly offspring, to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? To, to send these arrows forward to a day that we'll, that we'll see, right? So... And Acts uh, 17, I find this a really helpful, uh, the providence of God. So he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. As you have the parents that you do, you were born when you were, where you were, because God ordained it. He has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. What that means as a parent is the children you have were given you by the Lord. He determined their allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place that they perhaps might feel their way toward him and find him. So your children could have been born in, in uh, some unbelieving Hindu, Buddhist home. On the other side, they could have been born um, to atheists, wherever. They could have been, you know, all kinds of conditions. They were born to you. They were born to parents who'd been regenerated by the Spirit of God who know and love the gospel, in a church that knows and loves the gospel. That's huge kindness from God, huge kindness. And it goes a long way to, 
uh, a proper expectation of that the Lord will save our children. Right? We know that salvation is always a miracle of grace. We don't presume it. But the Lord has given all kinds of providential kindnesses to us. And we need to engage our children that way too. Right? Well, again, we're not raising our children to make a choice. We're raising them to embrace the truth so that they choose rightly. Right? Now, I want my kids to be 60 years old and say, I, there was never a day that I Jesus. Even though we know that they were born not knowing Jesus. But their experience was being oriented to Jesus from birth, right? And trusting him at a young age and bearing fruit. And that, that's the goal, that's, which is a miracle. It's always a miracle. Okay? But we need to see that the Lord has given us these kids. So thesis three, one of the primary responsibilities of parents is to train their children to know, love, and obey the Lord. If that's what children are here for and the Lord has given them to you, then guess what your responsibility is, right? To know, love, and obey the Lord. So, and edu- excuse me, education, as we know, is both caught and taught, and especially as regards what we love. Uh, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, often talks about as a teacher, he knows that what his students are going to take away in, you know, 45 hours of instruction over a semester is the things that he's most passionate about, the things he gets stirred up and animated about, right? Because those things just, we're drawn to them. It sticks with us. Oh, this, he really believes this. The things they see lived out in your lives, right? You go through a tragedy, and you don't, you're not Job's wife, right? Curse God and die. But you trust the Lord, and you turn to him. And you, and you weep and mourn, and, but you trust the Lord, and you turn to him. And, and people say, that's not natural. And you're right, it's not natural. It's supernatural, right? Or it can produce that kind of grace in our lives. And our kids are profoundly affected by that. Because they see, oh, this is the right way to respond to suffering, evil, sorrow. They're not going to get that message other places, right? They're going to get curse God and die or, you know, drug yourself up on alcohol or whatever substance or divert yourself with Netflix or whatever, right? They're not going to get faith-filled engagement, right? But as parents, as you do that, that's a profound testimony and legacy. Um, And Deuteronomy 6 speaks to this. And so this is one of the key passages in Scripture on this topic. So we already hit the Shema, the first part, but then look where, how these things apply, right? Love the Lord your God with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, right? That's one of the big emphases from the Old Covenant to the New is that the law is not written on these stone tablets, it's written on our heart, You're not circumcised externally, you're circumcised in the heart, right? And so these things are on your heart, and then what do you do? You teach them diligently to your children. That's the first application that the Lord gives to his people. These truths that I've taught you, own them, love them, and then teach them diligently to your children. Not once and done, diligently, without fail, right? Uh, You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. So what's excluded in that? Nothing. You're either at home or not at home, right? Uh, and when you lie down and when you rise, what's excluded? Nothing, right? These, these are just poles that say all the time, everywhere. There's no where and no time when you shall not teach these things to your children. They permeate us. This is how, this is how we understand life is through the Lord. The Lord is life. And so we're going to engage life on his terms, Right? Bind them on your hand, frontlets between your eyes, write them on the door. So just everywhere you turn, everywhere you go, 
The Lord's there. Teach these things to your children. Ephesians does it more summary and brings an important emphasis. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And notice Ephesians 6, the commandments to children echo the Ten Commandments. Right? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. That it will go well with you. He told of depravity. Probably gave the greatest exposition of it in Scripture. Right? And it's saying, children, obey your parents. Well, can our children really obey us apart from God's grace? No. Right? But we're to bring them up, and especially fathers, in the, in the discipline and instruction. Another version, I think, says fear and admonition. I think you usually quote that one, uh, which might be NAS. But the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? That's what we bring them up in. And, and they, they grow up um, where that truth has so oriented their life that they want to obey their, their parents and they, because they want to thrive. They want to experience the Lord's kindness. Uh, and so that is one of our primary responsibilities as parents. Thesis four, children have a God-given... Uh, if you've read Bill Farley's book, Gospel-Powered Parenting, which is a very good book, he does a good job of showing how the influence of fathers is disproportionate in the uh, outcome of children, especially as it comes to will they be Christians or not. And so uh, single father who believes mother doesn't, higher percentage than the mother who believes and the father doesn't, right? Church attendance and belief, the, the influence of fathers is disproportionate. Now, that's stats. That's not faith. And so if you're a single mother, that doesn't mean, oh, my kids will never know and love and fear the Lord. No, it doesn't. You cry out to the Lord for mercy. What it does point to is how the Lord has structured the world to have a father to picture him to his children is a profound Fathers, we have a, a profound effect. Fathers are, are connected with authority, justice, right? And, and saying, and love, but the way a father loves and the way a mother loves are not identical, right? We're made for different purposes. And so, uh, as fathers, we need to see and embrace that responsibility, that we would raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that they would look to us for that, um, when fathers don't, then other authorities have to, and that never goes as well, ever. Uh, so four, children have a God-given disposition to trust and follow their parents' example. This is part of God's good design from the world. This is just obvious, right, from all of our experience. But you also see it, so I gave two examples here. Uh, and when time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? We're talking about meaning. And this is an Israelite. He's in the land of promise. He says, okay, Dad, so he taught me history. I know that we used to be in Egypt, and then we went on this long 40-year journey, and now we're here. Those are historical facts, right? We could get out the atlas and show them. We could talk about history and events and Moses and Pharaoh. What does that mean? What do these facts mean? Right? And look how he answers it. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us up, brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. That's what it means, son. Right? He rescued us strong hand. We have a Savior who's mighty, who rescues his people out of slavery. And then that goes immediately, not in the text, but theologically and uh, logically to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who rescued John. So you see the connections. Deuteronomy 6 also, son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning 
of the testimonies and statues and rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Why has God given us all these rules? What are they for? Right? And so as parents, we're constantly giving means. We have rules. Right? Uh, you, you respect. You obey. So the capital sins in my house are disrespect and lying. Right? Those are, those are massive. Because uh, they undermine everything else. And conversely, with respect and truthfulness, you can build tremendously. Right, so we have few rules consistently enforced, and, and the little permutations of things all point and connect to those truths. Right? So yeah, we don't do certain behaviors, but not because they're a rule. They're actually an application of these truths of who God is and the way the world is. Um, and so we're constantly giving that meaning. And then Proverbs 23, 26 is one of my favorite parenting verses in all of Scripture, because I think it gets at the heart of it, which is, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So as parents, especially as fathers, our goal should be to have the hearts of our children. Because if you don't have your child heart, tragedy's coming. Right? You might have a child who's a little more externally conforming, and so they're going to do what you want until they get out on their own. Or you're going to have a child who just bucks against the rules because that's oppressive, and they're just going to fight you relentlessly. But if you have the heart of your child, then you can engage. And yeah, there's ups and downs and struggles. But uh, the heart of your child, you want your child to love you and to know your love, right? And then they observe your ways. And, and there's that dynamic too, right? It's the caught and taught. It doesn't do a lot of good. It does do good for my child to observe my ways if I don't have their heart. But it's actually a lot more condemnation. If I'm walking righteously and I'm with Jesus and I don't have their heart and they're rebelling, then my life is a testimony against them instead of something for them to aspire to and engage. Right? So I want their heart and to observe my ways, both together. Okay, thesis five, and this is bold and italics like a fundraising letter. Education, therefore, is most fundamental. I just, it always blows my mind. I'm like, you guys use more, everything's bold and italics and underlined. Like, if everything's important, nothing's important. Right? This is the only thing that's bold in the text. Education, therefore, is most fundamentally a responsibility of parents. Okay? Other educators and institutions may be involved, certainly, but parents always bear primary responsibility before the Lord. So if you send your children to a school, you don't lose your primary responsibility before the Lord for the education of your children. You don't get to farm that out. Okay? This is inescapable. And so if you struggle with that concept, uh, just like any concept in Scripture that kind of grates against us, we need to be convinced by Scripture, and then we need to embrace it as good. It's good for me <laughs> to obey the Lord. The Lord never gives arbitra arbitrary and capricious rules and laws. They are always uh, expressions of reality. And so when we embrace those things, we find life and flourishing. We just, again, we just went through Proverbs on that. And so these texts get at some of that. In Exodus and Deuteronomy both, you notice a multi-generational emphasis, right? You tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, right? Make them known to your children and your children's children. The, the, these are privileges. It's one of the things I look forward to about being a grandfather. Uh, Deuteronomy 11 uh, 
Again, these words in your heart, in your soul, they're all around you. Teach them to your children, talking to them when you're sitting and when you're walking. So we did miss sitting, right? We had lie down and stand. Now we've got sitting. So we've got every posture covered um, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Okay? Proverbs 1, the, the book starts with this call. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. They're a graceful dependence. Proverbs 3. Well-known text, right? Um, you, you, there's a, a temptation, I think, to ruin that text in a few ways. One is to make it almost a, a lifeless promise that isn't connected to what you do every day. Yeah, yeah, but I gave them the right materials, right? Everything came from a Becca or wherever, right? Like, these are the perfect materials. But there's a lot more to it than that. Right? There's meaning. There's your life an example. There's an others. So, uh, but the other is to undervalue it. No, no, no. Your, your training is profoundly formative. And you can have comfort. You can have strength. You can have hope that the Lord will work through your efforts. It was never going to be um, ultimately about any of our efforts. We don't save our kids. We don't sanctify our kids. But we play a massive role in those things. Massive. Because the Lord works through means, right? He works through means, uh, and parents are our primary means. So, uh, But even also notice in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, this is a primary qualification for elders. If your children uh, are ungodly, they disqualify you from being an elder, right? Children can qualify, disqualify a man from being an elder because they are his wife and children, the immediate fruit of his grasp and application of the gospel. So we don't want to act like what our kids do doesn't reflect on us. It reflects on us profoundly, right? It's, it's why when you go to the grocery store with a little one and they're screaming their head off, you're looking for a place to hide. You're like, that's not my child, right? I don't know who that is because uh, it's a reflection. Now, we need to be gracious and say, of course, everybody's child screams and it doesn't necessarily mean that person's a bad person. It might, but it doesn't necessarily, right? So, uh, thesis six, parental abdication of the responsibility, and I italicize this to make sure what the responsibility is, to educate our children in every way. So if we abdicate that, if we engage parts of it, but not all of it, or we don't engage it, is a recipe for disasters, both experience and scriptures show. And so you can read 1 Samuel 2 and look at Eli and his sons, which is one of the great tragedies. One... Look at uh, three. In the last days, uh, the characteristics of sinful people, one of them is disobedient to their parents. Have you noticed that? That's a characteristic of the sinfulness of the last days, disobedient to their parents. So, um, and then Hebrews 12 hits both sides of it. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Abdicating your responsibility is to, and I, it's a shocking word, it shouldn't be, it's just how we use it, but it's to bastardize your children. It's to illegitimatize, a, a bastard is an illegitimate child, right? It's to remove them from the legitimacy of the that the Lord has provided. Okay? 
that, that if we're not being disciplined by the Lord, so you see, you see an unbeliever and they seem to just be thriving. And, and, and Psalms has this, right? Lord, why? Why? It's actually the judgment of God. He's not disciplining them. He's not as a beloved son or daughter. He's letting, when the Lord gives you what you want, that can be a bad thing sometimes, right? The Lord gives people what they want. He turns them over to wickedness. Now, it's a good thing for his children, for his people, that the Lord gives us what we want, rightly, right? Delight yourselves in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But for an unbeliever, it could be the Lord actually turning them over to, to um, judgment and condemnation. So, as we to see these responsibilities, understand them, have biblical convictions about them, and engage them with faith. Are they beyond us? Absolutely they're beyond us, right? That's why we have to grow. And, and, and that's how the Lord works in our lives, right? You get married, you become a husband or a wife, and you're like, oh, man, what, what does this mean? And how do I do this? And how do I engage? And then you become a parent, right? And you have your first child, and it's like, this is overwhelming, uh, and then as you add children, you're just like, who, what? You know, like, how do we do this? And, 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 you, and then you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not adequate for this, right? I need your grace. What do I say when my child says this or does this, right? How do I engage these responsibilities? And you cry out to the Lord, and the Lord opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's how we mature, and that's how we grow, is by stepping into responsibility, Okay? So don't, don't be overwhelmed by the responsibilities. If you're aware of having failed responsibilities, um, don't resolve to do better. Repent. Repent. Confess and repent. Lord, I, I totally dropped the ball here. Please forgive me. Please change me. Tell, how, do, how do I engage this now when I haven't been engaging it? Right? That, that's, we're not, Christians aren't do-better people. We're gospel people. We have a Savior. We're forgiven, and we grow by his grace, which means we do do better. It's profoundly important how we get there, right? Uh, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, right, on the foundation, the ground of God is at work in you, both to will, so he's working in you to, to change what you want, good pleasure. Changes your will, which changes your actions, okay? That's the, and it's all a gospel process. Uh, Thesis 7, because of the fall... All of these responsibilities have been made more difficult. The primary obstacle we face in, in educating our children is the sinful hearts of our children and ourselves. That's, that's the biggest obstacle. There are other obstacles. Those are not the only obstacles. Those are the biggest. Um, so Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Isn't that a great verse? Bound up in the heart of a child. Uh, you didn't have to put it there. It's part of the package, right? It comes along. But the rod of discipline drives it from, far from him. In Romans 7, right? Do not do what I do, the very thing I hate. We need a Savior. Our children need saviors. Savior. Um, and so that's what we need to face. And so, so much of sin often for parents is unbelief, right? Fear, anxiety. Oh, no, if my child does this or if they don't pass... And then they'll never make it in life, or you know, like whatever, whatever your standards are. Like, uh, there, it, Kevin DeYoung wrote a great post years ago. He's like, "Look, just let your kids watch Saturday morning cartoons, give them a bowl of fruity pebbles, and just relax a little bit. Like, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> just a little too wound up. Your problem is, is probably not that you're too apathetic with your children. 
probably the other way, uh, too anxious. And you need to identify that and say, Lord, give me faith. Help me to engage this with faith. Um, so uh, the, the primary sin of our children is selfishness and insubordination, right? Uh, I, however that's expressed. Uh, thesis 8. Other sinners, including teachers and peers, are also an obstacle to children. Again, none of, no schooling choice will save your children. And everywhere that your children go, uh, they will encounter sinners. Um, and if you think sending them to a Christian school will not produce that, uh, you're going to have a rude awakening, right? Because even if there were no sinners at that Christian school, when your child arrived, there would be a sinner, right? So, but they're, they're all sinners. All the students are teach- sinners. All the teachers are students, sinners. Like, it's just, right? It's, it's like when I tell young adults, look, your only option is to marry a sinner, right? You don't get to marry any perfect people. That's just the way it is. That's part of premarital. Uh, and, and your fiancé is marrying a sinner, so... Um, and so to see, you know, these verses here are establishing a couple things. One is that the Lord has enemies, Nahum 1, uh, that the Lord has wrath, Romans 1, that he sees ungodliness and unrighteousness and that he opposes it. We need to remind ourselves of these verses. God is not Mr. Rogers. He is not. He will not be mocked. He does not treat wickedness doesn't matter how thoroughly we've been jammed on homosexuality and all these things. He has not. He calls it an abomination. Okay? And so we need to have moral clarity to engage the world and, and call things what... We also need to see 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolish. He thinks they're stupid. How could you believe that, you big dummy? Right? That's the natural person. Um, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He, he's unable. There's an inability. It, it doesn't penetrate because it's a natural person. Okay? It needs the supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to transform the heart so that the understands and believes. Right? And so our great hope in dealing with the natural person who mocks these things as folly. It's not our arguments. It's not our perfect behavior towards them. It is the Spirit of God who takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh, right? And some people make that, I have very dear family members who can, who, who test my actual belief in the efficacy of the gospel, right? Can God save these people? Because they're so hard and they're so opposed to him, right? And he can, and he does. And them being saved would be no more miraculous than me being saved or no more miraculous than any of my children being saved, okay? Because it's the to be changed. Um, but those, that's what's being pressed in that engagement. But that's what we need to understand, too, that it doesn't matter if we go, on this respect, if we go to government school or a Christian school, there are going to be natural people there who have not been regenerated, right? It's just reality. Everywhere we go, there's natural people in this church. I don't know who they are. I don't have windows into their souls. But of course they are. Of course they are. And so we have to be aware. And that the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing 
the light of the gospel. And thanks be to God, Jesus overcomes that. Right? The devil doesn't get to win. Jesus is never frustrated, like, oh, I would really like to save them, but I can't. Right? It's just not the way it works. Thesis 9, the devil works relentlessly to reinterpret reality in a manner that either directly or subtly distorts who God is and what that means for us. And so if you look at Genesis 3, again, the great example. The devil's not arguing facts. He's arguing meaning. Right? He, he uh, a little bit argues facts because he distorts God's word, but he's doing that to get at the meaning. Right? Did God really say that you can't eat or touch? Right? He adds a prohibition to, to get at the meaning of God is holding out. God is stingy. He's not good. But then he just directly concentrates. You, you won't die. Actually, you're better off. Right? So the question of meaning is really important. And you see it with Jeroboam. You know, when we went through Kings, was that last year? <laughs> Hard to believe. So uh, from, from 1 Kings 12 on, Everything references Jeroboam, his folly, because the kingdom divides, and Jeroboam, we don't have the temple. We don't have the temple, and my people have to go to Judah to worship. I'm going to lose them. I'll lose my kingdom. I'll lose my power. So I'm going to build an alternate religion that will keep my people loyal, right? And, and very reasonable, unless there is a true God, right? Um, and so just that, that meaning, that reinterpretation of reality, because the Lord offered to Jeroboam a, a legacy, a heritage, not, not nearly as great as David's, but not insubstantial. And Jeroboam despised it. And then the rest of the book spends, remember Jeroboam? Remember what he did? He led Israel astray. He led Israel astray. He led Israel astray. Because he, he put the wrong meaning to events. Okay? Thesis 10, therefore, verse... It's an important means of reorning the heart of fallen man to the truth as God has revealed it. So all of what we do as Christians is in many ways an undoing of the curse. I, I spent most of my first 29 years at theology. And uh, the few, first few years coming here, I felt like I was unlearning so many things and reorienting and reinterpreting oh, it doesn't mean that, it means this. Or it's not this category, it's that category, right? Um, and that's growing up in the church. So imagine someone, uh, which, just a side note, is one of my concerns about bad Christian education, right? Bad Christian education can be profound because what it can do is inoculate people to the truth. Oh, I think I know what Christianity is. It's this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic, no, 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 that's not what it is. But the problem is you think that's what it is and you rightly reject it, but now you're not open to what it actually is. <laughs> There's a danger there, okay? Um, so true education is undoing the curse. And, and so that's like Romans 12, don't be conformed, but be transformed, right? The renewal of your mind through testing. Second uh, Corinthians 10, the weapons are warfare, not flesh. But, and so we're destroying arguments, every lofty opinion, bringing the truth of God to bear. John Milton, uh, the end then of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright. And out of that knowledge, to love him, to imitate him, and to be like him. Right? And he lays out this incredibly thorough program of you know, 100 to 150 students and this much time doing that and that. And here's what you should eat and here's the exercise you should do. It's really interesting. 
Uh, I didn't do it, but it's really interesting. Uh, thesis 12. True education loves and pursues the glory of God. If God is ultimate, then his glory is ultimate. And so true education must be aimed at that. Right? We don't want to keep our children from the ultimate truth, the most glorious, soul-satisfying truth. And so that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction in Ecclesiastes 12. What's our whole duty? What's to, to fear God and keep his commandment? Because God's going to bring everything into judgment. And Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should be glory I will not give to another? God does not share glory. Acts 12, Herod is struck to death because uh, he's arrogant. He's eaten by worms. It's one of the most gruesome Bible stories. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Again, eat or drink, these are, what do you do that's more mundane than that? Right? So everything we do, we're to do to the glory of God. And then Paul says, and be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that's a parental thing. So we want to do everything as a family to the glory of God. And children, imitate us. We're looking to do things to God's glory. Do it, do it like we do. Thesis 13, true education involves loving God with our minds. So Christians are not um, anti-education. We're pro-education. As the truth revealed to us in God's word informs and controls our understanding and interpretations of life. That's the growth of sanctification. We, we understand and interpret more and more rightly as we mature, as we grow, and that involves our minds. Um, so Augustine talked about true virtue as what he called ordo amoris, which is uh, rightly ordered. So every object that we love is given that degree of love which is appropriate to it. Right? <clears throat> Sorry. So an idol is a disordered love. It's something that we either shouldn't love at all or something that we love too much. We love it more than God. And virtue is rightly ordered love. So we love God the most and his glory and his truth. And then that interprets all of life to us so that we love family and we love our church and we love you know, all these various things in, that we love rightly. And we're able to enjoy them virtuously because they're in the right order. They're not out of whack. They're not disordered. Okay? And, and so part of that is our minds being transformed by God's word so that we engage something and say, okay, we don't have to do this like, I mean, if you're an engineer, maybe you create an Excel spreadsheet, but most of us wouldn't do that, right? We're just kind of winging it a little, saying, okay, I think I should love this about that much, right? Let me engage this. But not as much as... Um, so, you know, uh, my wife famously loves to tell the story of when Claudia was being born and I got hungry and I went out to KFC during the labor. And I'm like, look, in the delivery, only one of us needs to suffer, right? Like, I need to go get food. But she would say that's not a rightly ordered love, all right? I was, I was valuing Claudia. <laughs> it's a great story. I know, I know. But I only did it so I could have an illustration while I teach. Uh, thesis 14. The home has always been and will always be the center of education for children. The only qualifier I'd put to that is if you look at totalitarian states, they are very actively working against that. That's a characteristic of socialism and communism. Let's get the children out of the home 
so that they don't use that experience, right? Um, it's why our, our current progressives keep, no, we need to have universal pre-K. No, we need to have, right? They want to get your children earlier so they can indoctrinate them and get them out of the influence of the home. It's not just their benevolence to try and help everybody, right? They want to educate and raise your children. They're very clear and very active on this. We've seen this even, COVID has actually revealed a lot of that as kids were home and what they were being taught was being beamed into people's homes and they said, what? And they're like, that book's there? And realizing, oh, there's a whole agenda going on here. There's, these people are not passive. And so, but the home is God's design to be the hub of education. Doesn't mean all education must occur at home, certainly not, right? But the home is the largest influence on the child and is rightly viewed as the center and hub of all true education. And so you look at Deuteronomy 6, which we already did, Deuteronomy 11, other passages, they all revolve around the family's life and the home life. Obviously, you should have instruction in church. And obviously, you're going to have instruction when you go to grandpa and grandma's house. And you're going to have instruction when you do, if you do go to school or whatever, right? But the home is the hub. And it's, it's interesting. So Proverbs 1 to 9, we saw the priority of the father in the instruction of his children right? And so one of the obvious applications of that is if you're going to instruct your children, you've got to be around them. You've got to spend time with them. That's, I'm not saying that, but you have to spend time with your children. And through most of history, most people have had home businesses because that's just the way societies work. Um, it, it does mean for those of us who don't work out of the home, we've got to think and be intentional of how do I engage my children so I'm able to carry out this responsibility that the Lord's given me. But it's also interesting, I think, if you look at the last hundred years for sure, and, and feminism, the idea that women would be liberated, what are they liberated from? Babies in the home, right? That's the oppression of women, according to feminism. That's why abortion's a sacrament. That's why the pill is untouchable, right? Is because we have to liberate, liberate women from their... They're God-given design, right? God's given women wombs and bodies to nourish life, to grant and nourish life. And, and uh, Titus 2 points at the older women training the younger women to, look what it says, love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. God has designed women to nourish life, and a woman is oriented inward to her home and to her people, to her family, right? It doesn't mean that she has to be at home all the time, but, but that's her God-given orientation, and she's to nourish life there. A man is more outward-facing, more mission-facing. That's how God has designed things, and we're going to get into that in the weeks ahead as we go through Genesis. Okay, it's just clearly how God has made the world, and the world says that's bad. That's oppressive to women, and that's because they hate women. They hate femininity. They don't have a clue what femininity is, and so they despise it, right? And then there's generations of young women who think that they have to be like men. Uh, and Lewis talks about how basically you don't love and serve women by making them second-rate men. Women aren't supposed to be men. They're supposed to be women. Why would we, be, why would we want that? Right? It's silly. It's destructive. And so the home which is the hub of the education of children. You know, there's a reason that adage, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, 
It's a reason that that's had traction for so long, because it's true, right? The mother raising the children. You know, I, I think about sometimes, okay, I'm pastor here, you know, say we preach to 300 people, 400 people, whatever, 1,000 people, doesn't matter. That's influence, right? That affects people. Know the influence cumulatively and long-term that I'm having on six people, which is Lori and my kids. She's in the home with the kids way more than I am. Her influence on those five people is profound. Single biggest human influence on my children. Right? And so to not see the home and children as restrictive, certainly not as less, certainly not as... And it's interesting if you, you know, so my girls went to Penn Manor, right? So you do the, the survey. What are you going to be? I'm going to be a park ranger. Okay. Well, we'll see. Um, and then sitting through graduation and like every third kid's a psych major going to college. I'm like, there's just no way. Like, psych major's like, I don't know what I want to do. Right? I'm people and I don't know what I want to do. Um, like, it's just... What they don't have in that survey is, do you want to be a wife and mother? Do you know that's actually the most glorious thing? That's what women are designed for, right? But there's no, more, there's no greater influence you'll have in the world than that. That's nowhere in the government school curriculum. That's nowhere elevated, right? And so they're denying the most painfully <laughs> obvious things. Um, and, and, and then, you know, and that affects us, and it affects our kids. They get that vision. Um, so, the home is clearly God's design to be the hub of education. I'm not saying you have to homeschool. I'm just saying the home is the place where you're doing the bulk of your education. Any school, the home's still the place. And when they come home, you're going to be engaging them and debriefing them. And hey, what'd you what'd you learn? What'd you talk about? What, how did how did it go with so and so who called you a bad name or whatever? Like you know. Um, that's God's design, is that parents, because parents carry the primary responsibility, and that, right? And so who's at the center of the home? It's, it's the mom, it's the wife. It's glorious, it's glorious. We need to celebrate that. Uh, Fifteen, one of the primary ways that sin operates in all of education, especially government education, is unacknowledged presupposition. So often the most potent idols are the ones you don't even recognize, and this is the most painful thing um, in engaging modern secular peoples, they don't realize how profoundly religious they are. Well, this is just what everybody believes, or this is just common sense, or this is just science, or this is just progress. Or no, 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 you don't realize. You've been indoctrinated. This is religious. Because all of life is inescapably theological. And so there's no neutrality. It doesn't mean there's no common ground. We have tons of common ground. Because they're creatures created in the image of God, too living in God's world, where God's law, his truth, his reality applies, even if they're just so busy despising it and bucking against it, they still are. So we have tons of common ground, tons of places to appeal to them. Um, but there's no neutrality. And that was, that was one of the myths uh, of public education. Um, so if you don't think that public schools have unacknowledged presuppositions, Try a public school kid that you think recycling is a bad idea. Just do it. Or try and tell them that you're thankful for climate change. Because more people die from cold weather than hot weather every year. Right? Like, they'd be like, what? 
uh, when Morgan was in school, I think it was plastic straws, right? Plastic straws are ruining. Um, so, th and that's just, those are silly applications, but Psalm 135 is a really helpful and important paradigm text for us. So it tells, it talks about the idols of the nations, that they're human made, right? But the, verse 18, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That's just the basic principle of us as, as religious beings, as, as beings created to image God. Um, we become like what we worship. And so if you worship the true God, you become like the true God. You're sanctified. You bear the fruit of the Spirit. If you worship false gods, you become like and, and so uh, the, well, I don't want to jump ahead. So just to the students without building on religious presuppositions, this is because all the fundamental questions of education require religious answers. And, and C.S. Lewis was pointing this out 80 years ago. He said, you know, the problem with modern education is a boy who thinks he's doing his English prep and has no notion that ethics, theology, and politics are all at stake. It, it's not a theory they put into his mind, but an assumption. That's one of the great dangers of godless schools. It's an assumption which 10 years hence, its origin forgotten, its presence unconscious, will condition him to take one side in a controversy which he has never recognized as a controversy at all. That, that's a brilliant explanation of the values of, of modern godless man. He doesn't realize he's been indoctrinated. He doesn't, what, what controversy? Everybody thinks this way. Yeah, but do you understand to get there you have to assume this, this, and this? What are you talking about? Right? And so again, as Christians, we understand the world more deeply because we see the dynamics that are going on under there, the, the how God and, and what life is about and what people are for. And, and so Lewis talks about, with education, an open mind and questions that are not ultimate is useful, right? So not an ultimate question, but something lesser. But an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open, on, let his mouth at least be shut. It's great. Lewis is great. Okay, so here's one of the payoffs. So government schools have, especially and increasingly over the past 50-plus years, been captured by godless philosophies which are actually religious. So things like egalitarianism, present feminism, materialism, environmentalism, critical theories, pluralism, relativism, humanism. And increasingly, these schools are viewed and utilized by our elites to indoctrinate our children in values that are opposed to God, often under the guise of neutrality. Um, I don't want to go really long. Let, let me hit a couple things. So egalitarianism, I don't mean by that, well, you can be a compliment or egalitarian, that's not what I'm talking about. It's an application of that, but egalitarianism is everything's eat the great flattening of everything. And that's one of, at the end of the day, there's really only two religions in the world. There's Christianity and paganism. Lewis wrote about this quite a bit. There's a more modern guy named Peter Jones who's written some good stuff on this. Uh, and so things like, you know, Islam and Judaism would be corruptions of modern Judaism, corruptions of Christianity. Most other things are paganism, and it's a flattening. And what it's denying is the creator-creature distinction. It flattens everything, right? Paganism puts you in touch with nature because all is one and all is God. And it denies male-female and it denies good-evil, right? Everything flattens out. Everything's egalitarian. It denies hierarchy. 
our modern world is very anti-hierarchy. Now, not actually because hierarchy is an escape, but they deny that they're being hierarchical even as they lord over you, okay? Because they don't, they don't want to think that it's hierarchy. Uh, and so this, this egalitarian notion that, so one example would be the whole vocational thing. Is, is wife and homemaker a vocation? Not in the government mentality, right? And part of the reason they, they want to do that is because if the women aren't working at home, where are they working? In the workforce, what did we do? We doubled our workforce. We cranked up our GDP, right? And you see that often. And, and COVID was interesting because it, it flipped the script a little bit and there was a lot of wives and mothers going back home and, and now they're saying, hey, we need these people to come back so we can revive our economy, okay? There's agendas at play there. So egalitarianism, that's a big one. Anti the, the guy who's the most influential figure in modern education is a Brazilian named Paulo Freire. And uh, he wrote a book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And that book is something like the third most cited book in all education materials in the US. The guy has education. And one of his values is to flatten the distinction between teacher and student. The teacher does not have authority over student and, and lead them into truth. The teacher comes down to the student's level and helps them to gain critical consciousness so they can see all the problems of privilege in the world and they can become good little Marxists. Like that's his agenda. And that's what's captured. So the vast, vast, vast majority of teachers in America have been educated in these theories knowingly. So a few years ago, Penn Manor was rolling out this equity program, educational equity, and I engaged with someone in the administration there that I know well, not well, but I, I'm, I've had, I had a pre-existing relationship with him. And I got the plan, and I read through it, and I'm like, this is critical theory, holy cow. Um, and so I emailed him, like, hey, have you ever heard of critical theory? He's like, no, I never heard of it. And he's got an EDD. I'm like, dude, you've been indoctrinated in critical theory and you don't even recognize it because it's become the interpretive frame that you bring to the world and certainly to education, right? And, and, and part of where this has um, captured our, our culture is there was a philosopher named John Rawls who has a philosophy of justice, which is that justice is fairness, okay? And fairness is measured by outcomes. So... Um, I used to say I'm 6'2", but now I'm 6'1". I'm old, I'm shrinking, okay? If you're less than that, we would put boxes so that we could all be the same height. That's the right? Because if we're not all the same height, it's not fair. Well, what that means is uh, if we don't all get the same grade, it's not fair. If we don't all have the same amount of money, it's not fair. If we don't all have the same health, physical health, it's not fair. If we don't all have the same mental health, it's not fair, right? And so what we have to do is prejudice, they wouldn't use this word, but we have to prejudice the beginning to try and achieve fairness at the end, to take from those who have and give it to those who have not, so that we get, so it's not about, hey, we all have the same playing field and the same rules and the same opportunities. That is biblical justice. It's, so that notion of justice as fairness has been profoundly influential in our culture and our educational students. Rawls said, look, you design an ideal society not knowing where you're going to be born in it. Okay. Well, yeah, then we're all equal. So we're all born at the same place. Well, guess what? <laughs> that will never happen in God's world. 
He has made the world with hierarchy. It's his design. It's a good idea. We're not all equal. We're equal in some ways, right? Equally in his image, equal in value and dignity. And, but we're not all equal. I mean, just look around or think for two seconds. <laughs> we're all different. That's part of God's glory and goodness. We don't all have the same roles. You don't want your children to be equal to you. Right? They're your children. They need to respect and obey you. You don't need to obey them. That would be wrong. <laughs> That's an inversion. So just these values all around us. Um, materialism, feminism. Feminism is big just because uh, government schools are a thoroughly feminine environment, and oftentimes Christian schools are too. Because what's rewarded? More feminine behavior. Right? Sit, take your hands in your lap, pay attention. Guess who doesn't do that? Boys. Guess who's then diagnosed with ADD? Boys, right? They're the problem because they're misbehaving. Well, let them go play a little bit. Let them do some stuff, right? So uh, materialism, by that I don't mean primarily buy a bunch of stuff. I mean, the immaterial doesn't matter, right? At best, it's a curiosity that we examine. It, it isn't actually the most important stuff that informs all of life. And then things like that mean that sexual identity, right, that someone, is one of the things that really struck me when my girls went to Penn Manor, like, oh yeah, she's bi. I'm like, what? She's not bi. That's not an identity. It's not who she are. You're not straight. You're not heterosexual. You're men and women creating God's image. And the right identity is what you to be, and your sexual activity is with your spouse in marriage, right? But trying to label and identify yourself by your desires is a recipe for disaster. Okay, but that is how the, our world operates, how government schools operate. We create ourselves, be whatever you want to be, environmentalism, evolution. Right? These are profoundly influential philosophies. Critical theories, so things like diversity, equity, and inclusion are applications of critical theories. Social emotional learning, that's one. Um, Sometimes you'll see belonging placed instead of uh, inclusion because they realize that people are onto the DEI thing, so they're trying to change the language. And one thing on this, so um, secular humanism, secular liberalism was a weak God. Reality, there's no God, we can all just play together, no big deal. It was a weak God, and weak gods always get run over by strong gods. And, and so what's playing out now with critical theories and DEI and all this is a strong God that's coming in and crushing and saying, no more tolerance, no more equality. We're right, you're wrong, right? And you will bend the knee or you'll get crushed. That's what we're seeing is a strong God dispelling a weak God. You know, Christianity in Europe was a strong God. They've lost Christianity and retained vestiges of it. Now the Muslims are coming in and they're just going to run it over because they have a strong God. Um, and so that's what we're experiencing culturally. And the schools are one of the prime playgrounds of that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and just to, so, um, well, let me, so, thesis 17, therefore, government schools are the least, designed. again, we're not saying it's sin, but given the values of Scripture, where these are the values that are animating those schools, it's just common sense, it's obvious, this is the least desirable thing, Right? We need, to, we need to think rightly and critically about this. You know, just so I can be an equal opportunity offender, um, you know, Anchor right now has a uh, feminist 
Arminian woman teaching Bible. And Dayspring, for their 25th anniversary, brought in a Mormon, Glenn Beck, to celebrate. Right? And LCCS, I've had a lot of confused theological discussions with LCCS. There's, there's no school that's just like perfectly pure. Right? Um, and there's reasons to be concerned, but even, even more than that, reasons to be engaged regardless of what you're doing for schooling options. I'm just telling you, if you're doing government schools, the type of engagement you need to do things, and it doesn't just have to do with curriculum. One of the things that we found, they've imbibed and celebrate and the values that they engage life with. And so uh, a child naturally wants to engage with their peers, and so they kind of have to engage on the terms that their peer does. I'm not talking about explicit moral compromise, but I'm talking about even how you make sense of the meaning you give to the world. So what's the meaning that your student, your child's peers give to the world? That's a question wherever you go, okay? Um, so there, there's not a a pure and untainted place to go. So, thesis 18, Christian parents must carefully consider our responsibilities in educating our children in light of the above, and how we spend in time and money should reflect the Lord's views, right? So we're, we're gonna give account to the Lord for how we raise our children, and, and how we value things. Um, thesis 19, uh, fear and unbelief are sinful motivations in all endeavors, including perhaps especially in the education of our children. So Paul talks about this in relation to the food that we eat in Romans 14, where someone doesn't feel like they should eat a f meat sacrificed to idols, but they do. And he says, you're condemned, not because it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but because you're doing it against your conscience. If you are acting against your conscience, you're sinning, because you can't do it in faith. Even if objectively considered what you're doing. So a person who's been taught that alcohol is sinful and then they get into a setting where people are like, it's not inherently sinful, right? It, being drunk is sinful, and there's ways to use alcohol that are sinful. And, but their conscience hasn't been informed and transformed yet, and so they drink alcohol because they want acceptance. They're sinning, not because they're drinking alcohol, because they're acting in unbelief. They're going against their conscience. You understand? So we need to engage these educational responsibilities with faith, not unbelief. Right? So if you don't send your children to government schools, like there are things to fear in government schools or Christian schools or even your own home, right? So, um, but, but that's not why we do it. It's a consideration to do what we do in faith. The Lord is here. The Lord is good. The Lord's given responsibility for these children. Let me execute that responsibility in faith. Okay? Hebrews 11, without faith. It is impossible to please him. Impossible. You could make the perfect choices, but if you're not doing it with faith, you're sinning. You cannot please God, right? You have to trust him. And what's the essence of faith? He exists and he rewards. God's here and he's good. That's the essence of faith, okay? So finally, faith-filled and faithful parenting that raises our children to know and love the Lord is one of the great joys in this life. Uh, so the contrast, Proverbs 10, a wise son makes a glad father. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Conversely, he who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has it. And I've seen that um, as a pastor. Um, thankfully, uh, so far, by God's grace, uh, my children have been wise sons and daughters who've uh, been a joy. Um, but I've seen 
foolish sons and daughters who are a terrible grief to their parents, parents who are suffering um, constantly uh, because of their child's folly, right? And it's right to envision your child for that, you know, um, to say, so one of the things I say to my kids, especially as they get towards teenagers, is I want to rejoice in your life, right? And so I, I want you to, to step into responsibility and authority, and as you make these decisions, I rejoice. Thank God that you're doing this and you're doing that and the other thing. I want, to, I want you to bring joy to me, right? Here's the way to do this. Be wise. Honor the Lord. Know and love the Lord, right? It's not manipulative. It's, it's the way God's made the world. Um, so, and then John, now obviously John's writing about the church, but uh, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's not just the church. Right? And of course, as, as parents, it's a profound joy to see our children walking in the truth. So, all right, that's longer than I wanted or hoped, and I kind of blew through the end there. Uh, a couple things before we break. We put some educational options on here. and So this is besides the traditional public schools, the government schools. There's a couple uh, curriculum suppliers, Christian schools, online schools. Uh, I know there's more than this, and things are growing all the time. And so this isn't, again, meant to be exhaustive. This is certainly not an endorsement of anything in particular. It's more just trying to give you resources to study if you're looking. And then the resources for further study here are a combination of things. So if you haven't read Lewis's Abolition of Men, man, that's a great book. Uh, and the subtitle is great. Reflections on Education with Special Reference to the Teaching of English and the Upper Forms of School. Um, but that's a great... And if you haven't read Lewis's Space Trilogy, and especially um, That Hideous Strength, that's incredibly applicable to understanding the modern world. Um, uh, but uh, most of these other ones are articles uh, dealing with kind of the, uh, the broader trends and currents uh, atmospherically. The Germans have a great word, zeitgeist. Uh, geist is ghost, zeit is time or age. So the, the spirit of the age, okay? The cultural zeitgeist. Uh, and and uh, Scott Yenner, who's at the bottom, bottom there, he's a, a professor at the University of Idaho who has uh, been courageous and spoken out on things, and they have sought to cancel him. And he's, he's a smart dude. He's, um, he's had students accuse him of uh, judging, uh, of grading girls more harshly than men or not giving girls as much attention as the guys in his class, and he, he thoroughly documents, and he's like, nope, here's the, here's the receipts, you know, so he's gotten vindicated by things. But he'll, he'll make statements about transgenderism or other things, and, and the, the, the voice on higher education and things that are going on there. Uh, Doug Wilson, if you're interested in classical Christian education, which would be more of the Veritas model. Uh, there's a couple, I mean, Wilson's got some good things that are just applicable for education, period. But then also, uh, particularly cl classical Christian. Um, these three words of evangelicalism is helping us to understand the move from when Christianity was a positive good, like it was, it was a plus to be a Christian in America, to when it became neutral, which, okay, that's your thing, whatever. I got my thing, you got your thing, to it being negative where it's a social detriment, you might lose your job, you might lose, you know, uh, Keller, who just died, lost an award before his death at Princeton, I think it was, um, because he said unapproved things, right? And that's, that's how you know, one of the ways you know the God of the system is what is not tolerated, what's not allowed, 
what's punished. Um, you might have seen a homeless man, I think it was New York City, uh, used the bathroom and then used a pride flag to clean himself. And he was arrested and thrown in jail um, and, and called homeless. If he had an American flag, they would have called him unhoused and they wouldn't have done anything, right? Because he, he defiled the God of the system. Um, and, and you see that all over, like what's punished, what's called out, what's not allowed, what can't you say, right? One of the things we need to do as Christians is not self-censor, not allow people to defile that. No, no, no. If this is what God says, then it's the truth, and that's where we're going to stand, okay? So um, let me pray, and then we'll take a break for 10 minutes. So five of 11, you can go to the various classrooms, and we'll go from there. So let's pray.